Good morning. This is Kevin Payne, pastor at First Baptist Church in Independence, Missouri. Welcome to our podcast. What you're about to hear is a portion of our worship services that began last Sunday morning at 1030. Every week we gather and sing praises to the living God and hear teachings from His Word found in Scripture. We hope you enjoy the message. If you'd like to hear more, there are more here on the podcast, or you could come and worship with us. Our Bible studies begin at 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings, and our worship begins at 1030. We're located in Independence, Missouri, 500 West Truman Road. Why don't you come and worship with us? Last he 
open your Bibles, if you would, book of Romans, book of Romans in your New Testament, the Gospels, Acts, and then Romans. And just open it to the first chapter, we'll start there. Going to do something a little bit different today. Chapter 1, and we'll start there. And this is a continuation of the series of old-time religions. So we've talked about the book and the salvation. Today we're talking about the cleansing and the idea of what salvation is and is not. I'm going to do something a little bit different rather than going all over the Bible as I often do. We're going to stick with what I used to call the Romans Road of Salvation. Anybody ever heard of that? Yeah, some of you came to faith because someone used the Romans Road of Salvation. It's just an easy way to show people who Jesus is and why we need Jesus and stay in one book of the Bible. So we're going to stick in the book of Romans today. So for those of you who have opportunities to share your faith with others and you've tried to put it together in a way that's simple and understandable, you can do that by staying in the book of Romans and predictably we'll start in chapter 1. So stay with me if you would, beginning at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, as always, we begin with prayer. Join me, please. Father, we worship you because you alone are worthy. Creator, giver of life, master, Lord over all. Thank you, Father. You have created us in love. You have gifted us with this world, this nation, our families, the capacity for love. The list is endless of your blessings. Thank you. We thank you especially for the salvation we have in Jesus. You make us better than we can be. You recreate us. You make us our best. Father, be with us today as we worship. We ask that you would hear our words of praise, that you would hear our request for help and strength, that you would encourage and strengthen us, that you would teach us from your word, that you would equip us to live this life in a way that others can see Christ in us. Father, be with us today. We ask you to be with our leaders, our first responders, and our soldiers, wherever they serve, for those around us, Father. This is a big week in our nation's history. As our legislatures consider impeachment, we ask for your wisdom, Father. Not just truth, not just fact, but wisdom. Help us to stand together. Lord, be with us now. Open our hearts to your word and spirit. And again, thank you for all good things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, if you were to ask someone, if you were to die today, what would happen? How would they answer? How would you answer? I guess before that, we need to ask ourselves, is that even a fair question to ask? I was talking to a car dealer the other day. You know, I told you I had some car problems, had to spend some time with a large group of people trying to take my money, and they got it. And in the midst of all of this, they found out I was a preacher, and that's always fair game for conversation because you know how we are preachers. We're kind of an odd group, everyone seems to think. So they asked me all those kinds of things. So it was kind of a moving group of people. We were moving around a lot of things. So it was hard for me to get in a, a clear word. 
So I simply said, well, I don't know if you're a believer or not. And then I went on to talk about the gospel, how Jesus changes lives and how God works through preachers and things like that. And interestingly enough, that was pretty much a game changer in the conversation because as soon as I said, I don't know if you're a believer or not, they were no longer interested in hearing me talk. And so you can imagine how it went after that. I still bought the vehicle and they were nice, but you know, that's a kind of a game changer for people. So if you ask someone, if you were to die, what would happen to you tonight? Be prepared for a game-changing conversation. What we're going to do today is talk about that very issue. Not just what happens when I die, but who begins to work. Not just when I die, but even before. And how do I get ready for that? Because that is one of the few equalizing things, isn't it? We all die. We all face God. We all live this life in the presence of a God who is God over all. So live life to your fullest because you can't really know for sure whatever. Why even worry about it? A lot of people deal with things like that and most people, they really don't want to think too much about eternity. If they aren't believers, they aren't prepared, they, and it's kind of a scary thing, isn't it? I don't know what happens when I die and I don't know what to do in order to get ready. So today we're going to talk about how we can answer that question as Christians and as I said, this is a series of old-time religion. And so if we look back at old-time religion, not just from our own culture's history, but old-time religion, the history of Christianity, what you would find is this very message on salvation. So today we're going to go through how, what that idea of salvation is. And I want you to understand that this message applies to everybody. It's just not for good people or bad people. It's for everybody. In fact, is you need to understand that God doesn't see good people and bad people. He just sees people. And how they respond to him is another thing. What they do with their life is another thing. But when God sees people, he just sees people that he created. People with almost an infinite level of capacity for knowledge and wisdom and goodness. And people who often make difficult choices. So if we could go back into an old time and listen to an old sermon or things like that. Uh, what would you hear? Interestingly enough, when I was in... Uh, preacher school there was a preacher we studied a guy named Billy Sunday some of you have heard him he was an evangelist from the 20s 1920s and he was a old baseball player and he was quite a guy and he was one of those guys that they never they only made one person like Billy Sunday and he preached sermons over and over and over and his famous quote and this is when preaching class was a sermon's not a sermon until it's been preached 10 times and that was always interesting for us because when you're a young preacher, the hardest thing in life you have to do is write a sermon. So what we wanted to be taught was write one good sermon and preach it all the time. And that wasn't the point of the preacher-teacher, but that was what, we, what the takeaway was. So when we talk about the gospel message, we're talking about a sermon that's been preached before. So I'm not going to tell you anything new today. My purpose is, number one, if you're a Christian, to affirm you in your faith. I want you to know. Following Jesus is God's plan for you. If you're not a Christian, I want you to know following Jesus is God's plan for you. If you have people in your life that aren't Christians, I want you to know God's plan for them is that they follow Jesus for life. All right? So there's no wild and erratic thing here, nothing new to the Christian, but to those who have never heard the gospel, it can be literally life-changing. If you would, turn to Romans chapter 1. Read verses 14 through 16. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. 
I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So just so you'll know, the gospel was not a religious term. When Paul used the term gospel, it was simply a phrase which meant good news. When Jesus came on earth and he preached his message of forgiveness and God loving you and God forgiving you and God giving you a place into eternity, the people's first response was, well, that's good news. They had never heard that before. Before Jesus, people heard this. You have to go to church. You have to go to worship. You have to give money. You have to follow rules. You have to dress appropriately. You have to do everything just right. If you don't do that, you're going to burn in hell. And that was religion historically. Jesus came along and said, follow me. I will save you. Jesus came and to a people who had never heard the message. He said, God loves you. And he has a plan for your life and wants you to live a life in a way that brings you joy. And when you die, he will take care of you. And they responded, that's good news. And the term gospel simply means good news. And typically when you hear the word gospel, it refers to the Christian message. Not many people use the gospel in a way that does not refer to the Christian message. It happens from time to time. But whenever you see the gospel... We're talking about the good news of Jesus Christ and how people responded to it. So keep that in mind. And he says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So Paul had to start out by defending his message. Now why would he have done that? Why would a preacher start out by defending his message? I am not ashamed. Was because the elites and many people who did not accept Jesus as Savior in that culture were mocking the idea that this Jewish man could grow up untrained and die on the cross and do anything for humanity because that doesn't fit in with how people form religious beliefs. In ancient cultures, there were scholars and priests and preachers and Stoic and all kinds of people who had lots of good ideas and they would sit down and they would develop religious faiths and it would be understood on an academic level to be something that smart people accepted and then everybody else just kind of had to try to attain to that level of wisdom. Paul came along and preached the gospel of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus is simple. Follow Jesus. Allow Jesus who died on the cross and came back from the dead, allow him to save you. And it was immediately accessible to everybody. So the elites and those who controlled everything religious resisted it. And they said, that's a stupid faith. You need to get rid of it. And they said all sorts of things about Jesus and about Christianity and those kinds of things. So when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he's saying it to those people. Listen, I don't care what you say. I don't care if it fits in with your understandings of philosophy. I don't care if the academics of the world like this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. So instead of appealing to their intellect, so instead of appealing to any kind of acceptance on a cultural level, he was simply saying, listen, this is the way God has chosen to work, and I will not be ashamed or silenced in this message. So let's stop there. Can you say, I am not ashamed of the gospel? Now, you're sitting here, and you're in church, or you're among friends, and of course you're going to claim Jesus with your friends who are Christians. 
But let me ask you this. If you are with people who are not Christian, you're in a setting like I was the other day with people who aren't Christians and they're poking at you and, and trying to pot, prod around and find out what you believe, would you proclaim Jesus clearly or would you be intimidated by that? Not to say you're a bad guy or a bad gal or anything like that, but you have to ask yourself, am I to the place where I can speak of my faith and not be embarrassed about it? Only you can answer that. But we have to get to that place as Christians because one of the things that we understand is the most persuasive speakers aren't those that are the smartest or the best looking. The most persuasive speakers on the planet are those people who really believe what they say. So when you talk about Jesus, when you talk about going to church, do you really believe it? Do you really think this is the good news? Do you really think that when you die, God's going to take care of you? And only you can answer that. Paul said, I'm not ashamed. This is God's plan. So today when we talk about the gospel, let's just affirm, this is God's plan. I believe it. I don't understand everything. I don't read my Bible as much as I should. Sometimes they go to sleep during a sermon. I hope a preacher, preacher doesn't notice or anything like that. But let's just say, I believe, all right? This is the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and to the Gentile for everybody. So Paul just laid it out there and established this is where we are. So he wrote this to the church in Rome. They were already Christians. And what was happening was the smart people were getting saved or they were at least coming to church because there was a growing movement called the way, Christianity. And they were bringing in their doubts and causing people to doubt the message of Jesus. So Paul proclaimed, this is the gospel. I'm not ashamed. This is God's plan for humanity. So let's look and see what he says throughout the rest of the book about this. The next thing that we do, and again, we start with the Romans road. So if you're sharing your faith with someone, or you're simply reaffirming your faith in Jesus Christ, you'll go to Romans 1 and read this passage. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. You don't have to understand everything. You don't have to earn anything. You don't have to be good for God to love you. The power of God in loving you is the gospel. God has already acted to love you and to save you. So that's a given. You can't change anything like that. Now the next passage is in Romans chapter 3. So turn over there if you would. Romans chapter 3. I'll read just one verse, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody's a sinner. Anybody know any sinners? Sure. Every morning, the first thing you do in the morning, you go in the bathroom, you turn on the light, and guess what? There's the biggest sinner in the world right in front of you, looking you in the mirror. That's right. Everybody's a sinner. Now, we have to admit that the church hasn't done very good of communicating to people what a sinner is or what sin is. Typically... When you watch TV or see it in the media, you'll see that preachers call certain kinds of people sinners. And people resist Christianity because they might call them sinners. And they've heard preachers do it, and of course we've done it too. And we need to understand what a sinner is. A sin is any time you reject God's leadership in some part of your life. And everybody does that. And a sinner is anyone who has ever chosen to reject God's leadership in their life. So think about that. If sin is whenever you do something less than what God wants you to do, who's a sinner? 
Well, I am. Well, she is. Well, you are. You see, we're all sinners. So when Christians say, well, they're sinners over there, that's silly, isn't it? Well, of course they are. If someone ever asks you, well, do you think I'm a sinner? Well, say, sure, just like me. And be honest with them. Well, you're a Christian. Do you still sin? Yes, I do. Not proud of it. I fail. I fall. I choose my will over God's sometime. And then I confess and go back to God. Are you a sinner? Yes. You go to church, don't you? Yes. And you're still a sinner? Yes. Well, what's the difference between you, and, between you and me? Well, this is what Jesus does, how he comes in. But again, you need to understand that everybody's a sinner. It doesn't talk about somebody being good or bad. That's not what the term means. In ancient languages, the term sinner was taken from a word which meant missing the mark. So imagine this, someone throwing a spear, and that was in the day. They would throw a spear or shoot an arrow at a target. And to hit anything other than a bullseye was a sin. You see, it wasn't a moral thing or a religious thing. It was just a word, which meant missing the mark. So Christians came along, and they took that understanding. Sin is missing the mark. See, a lot of times people sin. They don't even intentionally do something immoral or ungodly. They're just living less than what they were planned to live. See, there's that idea. God plans for us to live in a relationship with him. So everybody's a sinner. Everybody sins. Are straight white folk sinners? Yes. Are homosexuals sinners? Yes. Are racist sinners? Yes. Are Presbyterians sinners? Yes. How about Baptists? Oh, yeah. Right? You see, everybody's a sinner. And we just have to understand this because the word was never intended to separate between people between good and bad, Christian and non-Christian. Everybody who lives on this earth is a sinner. It doesn't mean we're bad or immoral. It just means we've lived a life that is separate from God's plan. And by the way, the scriptures teach us that if you sin one, one time, you're a sinner. So everybody's there. Again, you see, it's that great equalizer. When we talk about someone else's salvation and we talk to them about the plan of salvation and sin, we need to be sure not to condemn them as a sinner, but just to let them know that we, like them, sin and we've separated ourselves from God and we need to do something about that. And you have to understand that. One of the other things is in Romans chapter 6, and that is the idea that sin destroys life. Romans chapter 6 Sin destroys life and brings suffering and isolation from God. Again, we're not judging people. We're talking about the effects of sin. Now look at, if you would, Romans 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So sin brings death. Now he uses the term wages because everybody understands that. You see, Paul was trying to connect with everybody. So when you go to work, you get a wage. And you understand that terminology, right? You do something at work and you get a wage for it. You do your job, you get a pay, a salary. So Paul said, for the wages of sin, what you get when you sin is death. Not just eternal death. We're talking about hell there and damnation and all those things. We're going to get to that. But he's talking here not just about eternal death and life, but the consequences of sinful behavior so when you sin 
you bring suffering into your life. When you sin, you suffer. Now, I saw an example of this on the news this morning, and it wasn't really of sin, but it'll illustrate the point. He probably saw it. There is some wacky guy on a jet ski, and he was flying around on a lake somewhere. You probably saw this. And he wasn't paying attention, and he ran in front of a big boat, and he got run over by the big boat. And he couldn't believe it. It was just bad luck, and this is how they talked about it. Well, it was just bad luck on his part. I thought, no, it wasn't. It was his own foolish thing that got him hit by the boat. He lived, he had a big cut in his head, and someone had to save him and all those kinds of things. But there wasn't any bad luck there. He made a stupid decision, and he suffered for it, right? It's personal responsibility. So whenever we talk about the wages of sin is death, we're not talking about an accident here. We're talking about something that comes into your life because of sinful actions. For instance, say you lie on your taxes, and you get caught, and you get thrown in jail. Is that an accident? Is it a crooked government? No. It's the death that comes from sinful behavior. Take another example. Say you see a man down the street with a wife and a couple of kids, and everything seems wonderful, and then all of a sudden you realize that the family's broken up, and he ran off with his girlfriend, and he loses everything. Now, is he stupid? Of course he is. But you see, that's one of those behaviors, one of those wages of sin when you cheat on your spouse, you lose everything, typically. And that's what Paul is trying to communicate, the wages of sin. We're not talking about people being good or bad, but the wages of sin. And it always destroys, it always isolates. Even if you don't get caught, and you've noticed this, you choose to do something that you know God doesn't want you to do, even though no one knows about it, and you get away with it, you feel guilty. And you feel isolated from people you love. And you feel isolated from God. And amazingly enough, nothing's changed in your life, but everything has changed and you feel alone. You see, sin brings suffering and isolation into your life. It goes with alcoholism and the abuse of drugs and all those kinds of things. Any kind of behavior you can think of that the Bible says is sinful will destroy you. It may not change anything from anyone else's perspective, but it can destroy you from the inside out. The wages of sin is death. Of course, Paul was also talking about the wages of sin that comes from a life of sin and how you are separated from God forever. And we need to understand that there is a, a very real circumstance that comes from people who die in their sins, separated from Jesus, and that is eternal death. So how do we avoid this? So far, we've talked about salvation and what it is and why people need salvation. So if you would, turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Verses 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So this is the cleansing. This is how people deal with their problem of sin. See, one of the problems of sin is you can't wash it away yourself. You can't earn a clean slate. You can't just all of a sudden turn over a new leaf and be a different person. It doesn't work that way, does it? We've tried. What you have to do is go to God and have him do something for you. And what has happened here, when Jesus died on the cross, what he did was pay the price, the penalty for your sin. 
It doesn't matter if you can understand that. Philosophers get all hung up on this. But the scriptures teach us that you are guilty as a sinner, separated from God, and worthy of punishment. And yet when Jesus died on a cross for you, he paid your penalty. It's almost as if he went to court and paid your fine. In fact, in one passage of scripture, Jesus is called our advocate or our lawyer. He stands in our defense and he pays our penalty for us. So that is the idea of what salvation is all about. And you don't have to be able to explain it fully. You don't have to explain it fully to anyone else. You don't have to understand it fully for it to work in your life. What you have to do, though, is be willing to accept the fact that Jesus' death on the cross and the resurrection gave you a chance to be cleansed of your sin. So you don't need to live your life with a sense of guilt. You don't need to live your life with a sense of separation from God or anyone else for that matter. God wants to work in your life. He wants to change you and wants to give you a life that's worth living. So here's the process. So if someone listens to you or you're thinking about this idea of salvation, this is the sequence. You hear and believe the gospel message. Jesus loves you. Jesus is God's son and he died on the cross for you and paid the price for your sin. That's the gospel message. Came back from the dead, gave us life. You confess and repent of your sins, and you receive Jesus into your life as Savior and Lord. So this is what it is. You hear the story, you hear the gospel. You hear that God loves you and wants to save you. And you say, I want that. And then you go to God in prayer, and you begin to confess your sin to God. And it doesn't have to be every sin you've ever done. Now, you can do that. That's fine. But it doesn't have to be that way. You know, there isn't a formula here. But you've got to go to God and open up your heart and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I've sinned. I know I've screwed up. I know I've done something wrong. And I, I, I need you to help me. And then you make a commitment. God, I will follow you. Come into my life. Save me. And I will turn from my ways. That term repentance simply means turn. So when you hear preachers say, repent of your sins, that's not a religious thing at all. It's a choice to live a different life. So you choose to believe in Jesus as Savior. You choose to commit your life to him. And you make that decision to live a different life. Now you're going to fail in some ways because you're human. And it takes a lifetime to break bad habits. But you make those choices and then God honors those choices and decisions and he sees your heart. And in that act of asking Jesus to save you, guess what? He saves you. It's just that simple. It is simple enough that my five-year-old sister heard the gospel at a revival service and got saved that night. Five years old. To this day, is sure that she received Jesus and was saved that night at five years old. It is clear enough that someone who's not particularly intelligent or well-educated can understand they need Jesus. Significantly, one of the largest places where the Gospels have an impact in the world today is in Africa, where people don't have very good educations, and they don't know and they don't care. When they hear about Jesus, they say, that's good news. And the gospel is exploding. Even in Muslim countries where people don't have any exposure to higher education, they hear the gospel, that's good news, and they get saved. It is profound enough that the smartest person you understand can be challenged by the gospel. You see, the challenge of the gospel isn't just 
asking Jesus to save you. The challenge of the gospel is submitting your spirit to God's leadership. The challenge of the gospel is acknowledging that you're a sinner. The challenge of the gospel is realizing that the fact that you're smart doesn't mean anything to God. See, the gospel is humbling and challenging and open to a young child. My little granddaughter could be saved. She doesn't understand a whole lot of things at age nine, but she knew she needed Jesus and she got saved. And it was really that simple. And that's probably all she knows at this point. I was saved when I was 12. I just knew that you could make a slingshot and hurt people and get in trouble by daddy. And I knew that I could get in trouble in school easily, but I knew I needed Jesus. Just like some of you at a very young age. On screen is a picture of a guy, and you've never heard him, Thomas Terrence. Grew up in Mississippi. Hated black people. Hated Jews. Hated just about everyone, actually. Troubled home, broken family, etc., Grew up in a church, made some kind of profession of faith, was baptized when he was 13. But something wasn't working in his life. He got what we call radicalized. Before there was the internet, there were pamphlets and people on college campuses and things like this. And he got drawn into the KKK. When he was planting a bomb in a, a Jewish doctor's home, he got into a gunfight with the police. His partner was killed and he was sent to prison for 25 years. He didn't get saved in prison. didn't work that way. He got out. Got radicalized again. Got into another gunfight with police. Shot four times by a shotgun. Emergency surgery, long rehabilitation. Back to prison for another five years. In solitary confinement for three years. Six by nine cell. Out of sheer boredom. Started reading everything including the Bible, just because it was there. Thank you, Gideons. So in the prison, he started reading a Bible, didn't care. He'd heard it all before, rejected it, but it was just interesting. And then something caught him. He was convicted of his sin like never before. He began to realize that the Holy Spirit was working on him. And in his cell, therefore murder, therefore a crime that he was absolutely guilty of, therefore racism and everything else, he received Jesus as Savior, cleansed and filled with the Holy Spirit, began to read Scripture voraciously, began to grow in the faith, was just accepted the fact that he would live his life as Christian in jail. Somewhere along the way, and I don't know how this happened, but 12 years later, he was allowed to be released on parole, went to school. You know the story, don't you? He became a preacher. Yeah. Guess what he preaches? Jesus saves. Guess the story he tells. I got saved. I was a sinner. I hated everybody. And Jesus saved me. Folks, that's the gospel. That's the good news. That God can take an absolute sinner, worst case, and in jail, save him from his sins and give him new life. That's the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is that he can find a housewife who's good and wholesome and pure and a sinner and separated from God. And he can save her in a Bible study. The good news is that he can find a professional guy, good-looking man, accomplished, the whole deal, and somewhere along the way, pierce his conscience and convict him of his sin and help him to realize he needs Jesus. You see, God loves everyone. Jesus died for everyone. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone. So this is how it works. 
So say a professional man wants to get saved. What does he need to do? Understand the good news. Confess his sins. And ask Jesus to save him. So a lesbian. How does she get saved? She hears the gospel story. And understands the gospel story. Jesus died. Crucified. Resurrected. She confesses her sins. And she asks Jesus to save her. Makes those commitments. And she's saved. How does anyone else? A racist? A Muslim? Anybody? How do they get saved? Everybody gets saved the same way folks. They hear the gospel message. They confess their sins to Jesus. He cleanses them. And he comes in and changes their life. Because they follow him. Your friends need Jesus. You need Jesus. You need Jesus every day. If you're a Christian, God wants you to continue to follow him. Continue to confess your sins afresh every day because you sin. And allow Jesus to cleanse you as he did in the beginning. For your friends that aren't Christians, they need Jesus anyway. Doesn't matter whether they think so or not. Doesn't matter whether they're good or bad or white or straight or gay. You know, none of that stuff matters. They need Jesus because they're separated from God by their sin. Let me challenge you. Make those decisions that will allow God to work in your life. And come to the place in your life as Christian where you can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And I'm going to share it with those people that I love. Nate's going to come and lead us in a closing hymn of invitation this morning. As we sing this hymn, let me challenge you to consider where you are in your relationship with God. Most of you are Christians, I understand. Make sure. You're living your life in a way God has called you to live. If you're not a Christian, God loves you, and he really does have a good plan for your life. Would you stand with me, please? Come forward if you need to make a decision. Forgive love. I've been forgiven. God has let me encourage you to share your faith with others. Work it out through your mind where you're not ashamed of the gospel and you're willing to share it. It is literally life-changing. Bob, would you come and lead us in a closing prayer? Right, let us pray. Father, we thank you for your words this day. We thank you for your eternal forgiveness and love. We pray for all the teachings you have given us to help lead us down your path. As we go forth this week, let us be worthy in all that we do. 
Let us live our lives in your vision and in your wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.